so delighted today to have Vince Bukala joining us. We have known Vince for a long time, in part because he does work at the margins of sovereign debt. And we have been admirers of his work. And therefore, we have been trying to drag him into our little universe from the margins. And he has resisted strongly, in part because he's writing important stuff in other areas like private equity and uh, municipal bonds. But we will keep trying. And having him on our podcast to talk to us and to talk to our friends who listen to this podcast is part of our continuing attempt to lure him into the world of sovereign debt that we think is so exciting. So, Vince, welcome to our podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, me too. And Mark, I was telling you both uh, before we got on the air, I've been listening to this show since since the uh, outset and have heard every episode. So I'm a <laughs> big fan of what you do here. Well, we love you for that. Even if you haven't listened to even one episode, we love <laughs> you that, that you said that. So we we want today to talk about one of my most favorite law review articles ever. And I don't say that lightly because I hate, I hate most law review articles. They're so ridiculously long. They usually do not have a point. And it's just it, the, the quality of much of the stuff that I have written, if I just look at that, it's just so woeful. But this article of yours on the municipal bond cases of the 19th century is a gem in so many ways. It, it's tight, it's short, it has a clear story, it has wonderful history, and it completely turns upside down the conventional wisdom. Now, I have to ask, out coming from a place of intense jealousy, uh, how the hell did you decide to write about these cases? I mean, Mark and I have known about some of the cases, uh, in part because it intersects with sovereign debt, but I had no idea that there were so many cases. I also had no idea that there was this historical narrative about what the Supreme Court was doing with these cases and a historical narrative that you turned upside down. But how the hell did you know about them? How did you realize that that there was something wrong with the narrative? And then how did you read all these old cases? I tried to read one of them and it's just, it's just incomprehensible gibberish. Well, th thanks for the kind words. Uh, I, I'd say this was a really fun uh, paper to, to research and, and ultimately write. Two things, I'd say, led me there. But, you know, um, one actually has to do with the two of you. You uh, jointly, I believe, wrote some kind of blog post when after Puerto Rico repudiated, this is now like, I don't know, it might have been four or five years ago at, at this point. 
And you, it was some short blog post, and the two of you pointed out the Litchfield against Baloo case from, and said, you know, maybe, uh, maybe Puerto Rico has a point here. Maybe they can repudiate these bonds. And I was, you know, a total, I didn't know anything about any of these cases. I read that and said, that's crazy. That can't possibly be right. And, uh, and, and you had cited, um, and, and by the way, this is like a three paragraph blog post you drafted, I think. So it's not like, it was, but, but you, you cited this case from, I think it was the 1883. And I looked it up and sure enough, it seemed to say that um, a municipality that had issued bonds for money and use the money, uh, you know, could then turn around and say that the bonds were worthless. And it, I, I just thought it was too intriguing not to not to look further. And then the second thing to say is this is a paper I wrote with my wife Allison, and um, and if she weren't interested in this, or if I weren't able to have made her interested, it wouldn't have happened. But I went home after reading Litchfield and Ballou and said, "You're never going to believe this." This is a crazy case, and somehow Puerto Rico thinks that you know six billion dollars of its bonds, you know, are worth zero. Um, this is this is too much, and so we basically started together, sort of reading these old cases. And as you say, Mita, there, you know, one of the fun parts about this, which was also a challenge, is that the the Supreme Court in these cases never kind of laid out a doctrinal framework like you'd find in a treatise or even like a modern. Supreme Court opinion. You sort of had to understand the very different procedural postures that were involved in the cases, sort of piece together what it was the court was up to. So we started reading a whole bunch of cases and slowly were piecing together what looked to us like a very sensible, um, a very sensible sort of analytical structure to the decisions, and then decided to um you know, looking deeper into some of the scholarship on the era, started noticing that it, our view of what we were seeing was inconsistent with what we were seeing in the scholarship. And that led then to the kind of more systematic project, which got a little more, a little boring, but you get faster at reading these cases once you've read, once you sort of know what you're looking for. Um, so it took a while, but it was, it was fun. It didn't, it didn't get, um, uh, it didn't get boring reading the article, which is, I think, um, sort of a, uh, an impressive accomplishment in and of itself. And, and I have to say, this is maybe the best example of the highest and best function of blogging that I've ever experienced, where you know you, in this case, meaning me too and me, essentially nothing about a subject and toss out a ill-conceived and probably wrong blog post that then prompts somebody to go do all of this work that solves your problem. It's, it's actually kind of kind of wonderful, very heartening. And I, I want to do all of my work this way um, from, from here on out. Um, can we just take a step back and maybe um, have you tell us what the historical narrative is about the Supreme Court's role in deciding these these bond cases. We're, we're talking the latter half of the 19th century here. So what is the narrative about what the court was doing? And then maybe that can lead us into your, um, your story based on the cases uh, and what you found. 
Sure. So, so to to explain what the story is about the court, maybe I'll back up and say a little bit just about what these cases were. Um, in the second half of the 19th century, um, a lot of the um, infrastructure finance for westward expansion, and in particular for the construction of short line railroads, was undertaken by uh, municipal governments, um, cities, and especially you know, towns and counties. Uh, the the practice that that emerged was that a um, a municipal a, a railroad promoter would go to a state legislature and say, "Hey, I want to you know build the following sort of road." Who knows whether there were some bribes involved or not? But anyway, they would procure a um, a railroad charter, and often in the charter or in in related legislation, the state legislature would allow um, municipalities through which the railroad was going to um, proceed to help finance the construction. And to do that, the, the, these municipalities would um, issue bonds and hand over the bond, you know, you know, 30 year type bonds, coupon paying bonds, hand over those bonds to the railroad promoter in exchange either for, for some equity or often sometimes just as a donation. And then the railroad promoter would go sell these bonds into the secondary market, you know, in New York and into Europe to raise cash. That cash would then be used to hopefully build the railroad, although sometimes the cash disappeared. Um, and, and then if all went well, the municipalities that were sort of essentially subsidizing railroad construction would become wealthier, and be able to pay off the debt through increased tax revenues attributable to the greater wealth of their of their taxpayers and of the land supporting those um, those taxes. So that that's sort of the backdrop. What's going on? Then it turns out that um, as things developed, a lot of municipalities either uh, couldn't or didn't want to pay the bonds, and 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 said they wouldn't. We're all very used to. Um, you know, and your show has a lot to do with um, defaults in general on on public debt. But these were a special kind of default in which the municipality didn't just um, say that it um, wouldn't or couldn't pay, but said that it didn't have to pay. That the bondholders didn't actually have a legal claim to or legal right to payment because the bonds that had been issued were invalid when issued. So they were just sort of just pieces of paper. Not, and had no sort of legal implications. So the municipal bond cases then were a series of you know several hundred disputes between bondholders seeking payment of their bonds and municipalities saying um, we don't we don't have to pay them. A lot of these cases, some of three hundred or so, um, reached the U.S. Supreme Court between uh, in the 40 years kind of between around 1859 and, and the turn of the 20th century and there's long been a to the you know to the extent that this episode has been studied in detail and you know I'll, i'd say most of us well i didn't know anything about it before i got going on this research but um the 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 scholarship on this episode usually has attributed to the supreme court a kind of um um, a sort of added, sort of an attitudinal model of its adjudication would be the simple way to put it. 
the the story has been roughly speaking that the the justices of the court were arrayed in favor of the bondholders who were capitalists from the East Coast and and Europe, and against the um, essentially the farm communities of the Midwest and West. Uh, so I guess that's that's I'll I'll leave it at that. I mean I guess the other, the last way to say it is that implicit in that characterization and, and sometimes explicit has also been a view that the Supreme Court was very much manipulating law in order in in ways that were uh, formally incorrect or improper in order to get results it wanted. That it almost always, if not always, sided with the bondholders over the municipalities. Um, and, and that in some ways the Supreme Court and the various state high courts um, were in a kind of conflict with one another. And yeah, so I, that, that's basically the story. So Vince, just following up on that to, to get a better sense, where did these scholars get this view from? Because it seems... Uh, I mean, yours is one of the few articles I actually read the footnotes in. It seems, I mean, their their language is very strong. They seem very confident about the story that they're telling. And I, I'm I kept thinking there there must be some source for this consistency among them in thinking that, that these uh, justices were just trying to do what Wall Street wanted. And, you know, I have I, I have so little interest in the Supreme Court or the doctrine of, of that, you know, my colleagues are constantly talking about and, you know, what which Supreme Court justice had for breakfast. But I was interested in this because I'd always I had heard stories of the, the railroads uh, manipulating the selection of justices, uh, but this dim, this seemed different. I I hadn't really heard stories of Wall Street getting their lackeys uh, to be on the court, and I wondered whether there there is some background story about in the late mid to late eighteen hundreds, Wall Street being able to put a pro-investor justices on the court and that that's how this story comes about. Yeah, I don't know enough about the 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 political economy history of the of judicial nominations that period to 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 even hazard a a guess there. What what I would say is that we trace the rhetoric or the story about what the Supreme Court was up to in these cases, back to actually a member of the court, um, Justice Miller, Samuel Miller, who was on the court during the, for most of this period. Um, and he was, I guess, and he, I guess the way to put it is he wrote um, uh, extensively and, and in a hostile way about the performance of his colleagues in these cases. Um, and then in second, and I'll you know, maybe come back to this in a second, the second place we see, we trace the, um, the history of this sort of account to is to the, the famous um, commentator on municipal law, um, John Dillon, Judge Dillon. 
Now, it, he also was very uh, vehemently opposed to the way that the court was deciding um, these cases. And you can, if you read uh, Dylan's treatise, uh, you, you'll see you'll see this. He's very hostile to the court's performance. Now, one thing we discovered what, as we're sort of tracing this through is that both Miller and Dylan were Iowans and had lived in parts of Iowa where repudiation politics were, um, were, were central to what was going on for a number of years. And indeed, it turns out Justice Miller, before he was Justice Miller, was a litigator who was um, stewing, in, it was involved in uh, you know, lawsuits of, against the local railroads and trying to invalidate debts in Iowa before he became a justice. So he certainly did not like the way that the majority of the court um, was acting in the cases. Then if you look at, uh, sort of you kind of try to just trace a genealogy of where sort of the gen general scholarly uh, view of these cases comes from, it seems typically to trace back to Miller, often through um, a very extensive history, a biography of Miller, an extensive history of the period done by Charles Fairman, you know, I think at this point, a good 50 years ago, obviously an eminent, you know, historian seems to have solidified a kind of the, the sort of view in the secondary historical literature about what was going on. That That's the best we can do to reproduce or re-portray sort of where, where the idea came from about the cases, you know, as we'll, I'm sure, talk about when we actually went and read all these cases, it just didn't fit the stories. So that might be a good time to talk about what you did find. You know, you, we have this, this narrative of the court kind of reflexively favoring Eastern capital. And from what you find, you tell a story of a court that looks much more like a legal institution where doctrine does seem to matter to a degree and where there are some relatively coherent, I guess we can talk later about just how coherent, but but at least relatively coherent principles. So can you kind of walk us through what you found when you did read the cases? Sure. So we, um, so just to kind of explain a little what we did, we, 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 we got our sample by um, just like paging through the U.S. reports. And we went through every volume of U.S. reports and just looked at every caption um, for a lot, you know, for a 50 year period and uh, and just just read every case that had anything to do with with um, municipal bond repudiation. So that we ended up with about 170 or so, you know, by the way, to anyone listening, I, my numbers here are all going to be approximate. You can read the article if you want. I don't remember exactly, but it was about like 170. Um, repudiation disputes that reached the Supreme Court in which the in which the matter at issue was the validity of the of the bond itself. Um, it's a very very high level. One thing we found was that the that the municipality prevailed in about a third of the cases. So just you know, starting with that kind of basic math, it, we just it can't be the case that. That the court was sort of reflexively um, deciding for the bondholders because they, they just didn't, as a kind of basic arithmetic matter. You know, we then divided the kinds of 
um, issues that were at stake, or, the, or rather to put it, put it this way, the arguments that were at issue before the court into two buckets. And we did this based on sort of our reading of how the, of the court's own sort of self-professed logic in deciding these cases. And there were some cases where, well, I guess, so let, let me, I, I'll, I'll back up and just say, that, that's kind of the overall major finding. Now we did find that in the very early years of these cases, the court was, did rule for the, uh, against the repudiating municipality for the bondholders in a high, in a, you know, most of the cases, but by about eight, 1870 or so. There was, so by the way, there was so there's a panic of 1873. There's a big depression afterward, and after 1873, there's a huge number of repudiations. And after from that, at least from about 1870 on, um, the the municipalities win in a good close to 40 percent of the cases. You have um, this very nice articulation of the kind of mechanism that the courts use to distinguish the cases where they're going to rule for the municipality versus for the bondholders. And my impression from the article, and this may be wrong, and I I did wonder whether it was a wrong impression, so fault is mine, uh, is that in every case, what happens is that the municipality uh, runs out of money and then looks to some mechanism by which it can avoid paying rather than the municipality has money but is so outraged by some corruption or some misdeed and uh, says we're not going to pay because we truly believe these are not valid. So that may be wrong, but uh, that was that was my initial uh, instinct from reading the article is, oh, this is just a whole bunch of cases where somebody calls up their lawyers and is like, how can I avoid paying because I have run out of money? And then um, you draw a, sort of a very nice explanation and say that you know the courts were actually pretty consistent and formal in how they applied their sort of fact law distinction to decide which cases they would uphold and which cases um, they would reject uh, in terms of the municipality's claim. And so if you could maybe clarify whether I'm on the right track and then tell us about the rule of the rule of thumb, or or maybe that's too pejorative, that that the courts were using to determine which cases to uphold and which ones not to, and then maybe later we can talk about whether or not those same analytical techniques should be applied to the modern cases. It's hard to know um, what was going on um, on the ground in most of these cases. There are, we know, I know, I should say that at least there are some instances in which bonds, a municipality issued bonds and, you know, the money that went to the promoter just disappeared into that promoter's pockets who disappeared from town and, and so on. So, And there were some kind of frauds in that way. We know that's true. I 
get the sense there weren't a lot of those, but there were some. Then there were some cases in which a railroad, I think there were a lot of cases in which the railroad was built, or at least was mostly built, which I don't know if being mostly built railroad helps very much. But a lot of cases in which railroad was built, but it just didn't deliver the kinds of economic benefits that people had hoped for. And it's hard to distinguish, as you both know well, because it comes up a lot in the sovereign context, it's hard to distinguish cases in which um, an entity won't pay from the cases in which it can't pay. And at any rate, I guess I'd say that those facts don't really matter in these, at least to the, in, to the they don't show up in the record in these cases. So the, your, the bridge way to point here would be to say this. The legal theory that the municipalities were asserting was not one that turned on inability to pay. Um, it, it, was a, it was a theory that turned on the corporate power of the municipal government to issue bonds in the first instance. So what lawyers would call the, an ultra vires um, theory of invalidity. The, the orthodox corporate law theory says that a corporation and you know counties and towns and cities um, would, would count uh, for those purpose, this purpose, um, can do only the things that they are permitted to do by the state government that creates the entity. There were two, so that the basic theory these municipalities asserted to invalidate the bonds was to say, well, at the time that we issued the bonds, either we weren't allowed to do that by state law, or we didn't perform the various um, conditions. The conditions to our issuing the bonds weren't satisfied, such that the with the emission of this paper was not actually a corporate act um, in conformity with the law. And so it's just something that some guy called the mayor or whatever wrote, but it doesn't actually bind the the municipal corporation. The the Supreme Court, I, mean, I guess we could say, kind of divides the that that formal argument into two types. Basically, one type was an argument that the um, the conditions, the kind of factual predicates to a valid issuance of bonds, had not been met at the time of issuance. That there's like there's you know make that a little bit more concrete. A common uh, rule in the state legislation that permitted. Um, railroad aid bond issuance was for a vote of resident taxpayers. So that, you know, we still have these bond elections today. And that that goes all the way back into the 19th century. So the typically the, um, you know, a county or whatever would notice an election or they were supposed to, the commissioner would notice an election. And then, you know, if a majority of the, of the voters voted in favor of issuing the bonds, you know, then you'd go forward with the bond issuance. One of the kinds of arguments that municipalities made was to say, in fact, um, there was not a majority vote at that bond election. The majority went the other way. And so when the commissioners nevertheless issued these bonds, that was ultra virus. The state legislation didn't allow us to issue bonds with less than 50% vote. And since we weren't allowed to do it, it was an invalid corporate act and the paper is wor worthless. So that's what I'll call a kind of fact-based um, theory of invalidity. The, um, the 
other kind of theory of invalidity was a kind of a law-based theory of invalidity. It just said something like, um, forget about, the, there were no factual predicates, which if satisfied would have allowed us to issue these bonds. Like the legislature just didn't allow this kind of issuance or some part of our state constitution says that or means that now, whatever the legislature said, bond uh, municipalities are not allowed to issue this kind of a bond. Um, and I would call that the, the legal kind of claim. The, the way the court approached these cases um, differed between those two types of argument. When the court confronted an argument of the legal type, you know, some constitutional defect or a lack of legislative authority um, to issue, it was just kind of an interpretive, it was kind of normal legal interpretive de novo type um, decision making. The Supreme Court, the justices would look at the authorizing legislation, um, look at the, uh, you know, do whatever kind of constitutional lawyering they do, and compare that to the nature of the bond that got issued and, and you know, do, and do the math that way. In a way, the more interesting, oh, and I should say, when in cases where it was just that kind of a legal issue at stake, um, uh, what we'll call it kind of this de novo type, you know, thinking by the justices, the municipalities prevailed in their repudiation in about 40% of the time, a pretty decent win rate. In the fact-based um, forms of, uh, or the fact-based arguments for repudiation, the court had a different approach, and it relied on um, an even older doctrine um, the, called estoppel by deed. Uh, the, the lawyers who listen are probably familiar with estoppel, but for the non-lawyers, the basic idea is that in some circumstances, a person is going to be prohibited from denying facts, which they once attested to in some formal way. So here the 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 in the bond context, the estoppel um, um, logic applied to recitals that would be written to most bonds when issued. So the the municipal um, uh, officials would you know what the bond would say is you know whereas you know the state legislature enacted the following law that permits us to do the following thing, and whereas we you know noticed up a an election for the following day, and whereas we had a majority vote, blah, 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 you know, essentially reciting all the factual predicates, the satisfaction of which would make a bond issuance valid. If those recitals are in the bond, then good faith purchasers in the secondary market are entitled to rely on them. The municipality is stopped from denying subsequently facts which were recited um, initially. So that that was a very common kind of argument, and it basically turned out when the when the court the very first bond case presented an argument of that kind, and from then on, 1859 on, whenever the justices saw an argument of this form of repudiation, they would look and say, "Well, do the recitals um, say that all of the factual predicates were satisfied at issuance? If they were, then the bondholders win." So that's. Um, you know, there were some exceptions there, that, but, you know, that, that's maybe detail. But those are the kind of two big kind of camps of argument that the court dealt with. Vince, I, I want to kind of steer us in the direction of some of the 
modern cases that raise similar issues. Um, and maybe as a way of doing that, I just want to express, I guess, puzzlement at the, the underlying idea here in the, the legal cases, the first category that you mentioned, which seems to be something like you can't, a bondholder can't reasonably rely on the issuer's representations about the legality of the issuance. You can, you can rely on factual representations, but law is a matter of public record and bondholders are smart. The intermediaries are smart. Um, you know, they can go find out the law for themselves. And I can't help being a little bit puzzled at that view, since in many cases, it seems to me the application of the law is going to be entirely uncertain, at least until there's been some definitive adjudication. I, I keep thinking about the, you know, the Venezuelan bond. Now we're out of the municipal context, but the, the PDVSA 2020 bond for listeners of this podcast. But you know, basically the argument there being that legislative approval was required because the contract was in the national public interest. And, you know, nobody has any clue what that term means. There are all kinds of representations in the bond that it was not uh, a contract in the national public interest. So representations that no legislative approval was required. And it seems like this, this falls into the category where the court would have taken a de novo approach, right? The, if we decide ex post if legislative approval is required or not, and if it was, bondholders lose. I'm 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 simplifying the Pettivesa case because there are conflict of laws issues and so forth associated there. But um, do I have that kind of right? And if so, does this distinction make sense to you? Like, why can't I, as an investor, rely on the issuer's representations about the implications of its own law. Yeah, so that you do have it right as far as what the U.S. Supreme Court was doing late 19th century in these cases. And, and there were some harsh results on, I mean, what looked to me pretty harsh results on the bondholders. I mean, by the way, I should say for, you know, for listeners, there's a whole separate question of assuming that a bondholder gets a judgment. There's a whole separate question of like, whether it's actually going to get paid or what kind of deal would be cut with the municipality or so on. But just on the sort of pure, you know, is this is my piece of paper that I paid good money for worth zero dollars and zero cents? There were some quite hard results. So, for example, uh, one kind of constitutional uh, legal and in this case constitutional question that arose in some of the cases was like, you know, actually it would be laughed at in a kind of post New Deal by a post New Deal lawyer, but. It was a question like basically whether it was possible for constitutional for a state government to tax and thereby and therefore for by delegation to you know municipal corporations was it legal to tax residents to subsidize um, private uh, companies even if they're building things like railroads that are going to be you know publicly available and useful and so on. Um, I mean, there's echoes of some of the stuff in the modern takings you know, debates and so on. But, you know, there were one case, for example, um, a municipality borrowed a bunch of money to uh, help finance um, uh, basically factories along a river 
to, you know, then they, you know, pl very plausibly might have thought that this was going to be a kind of um, economic development program. Well, it gets case gets to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court says, nope, state governments can't do that unconstitutional. Therefore, their delegate, their the legislature's specific authorization allowing this is invalid. Therefore, the bonds that were issued were never could have been valid, and these things are worthless. So there were, I mean, you have exactly right, Mark, though, what the court did, and, and that there was this very knife's edge um, approach. As far as whether it, it makes um, sense, uh, I guess partly that depends on how formalistic you are about law. What I will say is, that, as I understand, you know, I'm not an expert in what happens post um, post 1900, let's say. But one thing that certainly has, was a trend in the uh, private corporate law theory, or in other words, non-municipal corporate law theory, was that over time, um, both by judicial decision and then ultimately by, by statute, the rules shifted such that ultra-vires, even ultra-vires, Acts by a corporation could still be uh, a corporation could still be held responsible for ultra virus acts. In other words, the counterparty in one of these transactions could still come after the corporation and treat the invalid act as though valid. And I think that that change in law was largely to um, was was on account of the kind of um, razor's edge dynamic that you're pointing to, Mark. I, and that's my sense. In the municipal context, though, that rule never really changed. In other words, as I understand it, the municipal corporate law theory is actually more consistent with the old orthodox idea of corporate power. And this, you know, this was um, again. I'm not. This is. I'm not an expert on this episode. Although I'd love for you to have a someone who is on the show at some point, but the um, the Washington power cases back in the 1980s, when um, a bunch of Washington municipalities repudiated, effectively repudiated some bonds that were, that they had issued to support the building of, I guess, I believe some nuclear power plants. Um, they, 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 they still had the same form of argument open to them in the 1980s. So um, yeah, it's, uh, it is what you think it is. Wow. Uh, so, Vince, I, I hope you won't mind talking a little bit about the topic that you discuss right at the end of this wonderful paper, which is Puerto Rico. So Puerto Rico fits between uh, the world of municipalities and the world of sovereign debt, to my mind. And as I understand the story here, second hand, Puerto Rico, as it was gambling for redemption right at the end, and many people thought clearly they, you know, they, they should restructure, but the politicians refused to, they go to a bunch of hedge funds. And they say, look, we'll pay you higher rates, we'll give you bonds under New York law, uh, just give us uh, more money, and we'll somehow get out of this crisis. Needless to say, they, they don't get out of the crisis, but they get multiple billions uh, from these hedge funds. And uh, anybody who knows me knows that I, I don't have any great sympathy for these hedge funds. That said, when 
poor <laughs> afterwards, Puerto Rico turns around and says, uh, you know, you guys maybe didn't notice, but we issued these bonds to you in violation of our debt limit. And so we don't have to pay you. And there's not even any rescission. And then they point to these old cases that you have written so wonderfully about. It just at, despite having the greatest of sympathy for Puerto Rico and not being sympathetic to the hedge funds, I mean, it just seemed kind of upside down. Now, my sense is you also thought that, but it, it does seem like these old cases from the 1800s, if we learned the lesson from them, would be that every time I, we run out of money, we should go and scour our constitution and all sorts of other domestic law dictates to see whether or not we can find something that would show that the bonds were issue were invalid. Is that that one lesson that a reader who works in this area could take? Yeah, so one development that arose from the from these municipal bond cases, as I understand the history anyway, is the 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 development of bond counsel. These are um, lawyers who who basically came into existence to try to certify the legality, the validity of bonds when they're issued. Um, they have much that's they have a prominent role in municipal um, debt issuance in a way that doesn't doesn't track in the in the private context. And I think that comes from some of these concerns. Two things to say about Puerto Rico um, and sort of the general question. One is that um, we, we refrain from being too uh, uh, saying anything too certain about the Puerto Rico situation because ultimately the validity of those of the bonds in that instance are a matter of Puerto Rico law. Uh, the cases that we were looking at in the late 19th century turn on some combination of various state law, state bodies of law, as well as sort of the, the general law that um, was still in effect at the time is you know long pre-Erie and so on. And it's possible that you know something special about Puerto Rico law that Allison and I are ignorant of makes some different sort of result there. I, I, I'm not sure. But I would say that to the extent that the the principles that a court developed over that long period were to apply in the Puerto Rico context, our judgment was that the the bonds there would would, would have been valid. Um, so just to say a little bit more, you're right that Puerto Rico said that the issuance of these bonds had violated its its law. But if you actually kind of dive into the, the, the specific theory, it was this debt limit theory. The debt, there were a lot of debt limit cases back in the 19th century that looked very similar. And the court correctly, I think, um, always treated those debt limit disputes as questions of fact. So to the extent that an issuer recited in on its bonds that, that the issuance had complied with the, the factual predicates necessary to a valid issuance, that would foreclose 
arguments about um, exceeding a debt limit. Now, there were some exceptions to that. I, I, I skipped over in the interest of kind of not being too abstract in a oral, oral kind of communication. There were some exceptions the court recognized even in the 19th century to that. So for example, if a debt limit, so the debt limit is a creature of statute, obviously, so that's publicly available. But the, to know whether a debt limit has been exceeded, you typically need to know uh, some, some combination of things. You need to know how much debt is outstanding. You need to know, you need to know the numerator and denominator of some kind of ratio. Well, those numerator and denominator are fact, are fact, questions are matters of fact. The court said, uh, and I think this was actually pretty ingenious. The court basically said to the extent that the, the matters of fact one would need to know to calculate a debt limit are in the public record, the bondholders cannot rely on the on a municipal assurance otherwise, like in the recitals. But to the extent that a bondholder, an investor, could not calculate the debt, whether the debt limit ratio was exceeded um, by looking at publicly available and authoritative records, then the recitals are, are good and will defeat an, uh, a, a um, ultra vires argument by the issuer. So in, in Puerto Rico itself, if you just look at the way that the um, in that dispute basically came up, there were no authoritative public records uh, in Puerto Rico that 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 set out the 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 numbers one would need to be able to calculate um, the debt ratio. So, so I mean, the recitals there it seemed to it seemed to us as we looked at it to um, in in the way the court had understood these cases in the nineteenth century would have meant that the the bondholders would win and. In Puerto Rico. But yeah, more broadly, I mean, I, this is part of what got me so riled up when I read your blog post way back when. I thought, well, geez, there's kind of, I mean, we all, we're not constitutional lawyers on this, um, you know, call, but we all know people who are. And one thing we know about them is that they can have, they, they, they think, they all think different things. And it looks like there would be a lot of uncertainty could come from that. So, yeah, I, will, I would say it continues to be a bit surprising to me that that in some ways that there haven't been a lot more repudiation efforts in the last hundred years than there have been. As we wrap up, I just want to to echo that last comment because it seems to me that either I was not paying attention before, or at least in the sovereign debt world, we are starting to see lots of challenges to the validity of bonds. Often new government comes in, they may or may not have the money to pay, but um, uh, in a number of different settings, we've seen challenges uh, based on the argument that the issuance was uh, unauthorized under the issuer's law. And so I really do hope we can persuade you to completely come over to the dark side and write a, a similarly beautiful article telling us all how those cases ought to be thought about in the in the sovereign space. Um, and then we can have you back uh, to talk about that that article. Um, but thank you so much for for coming. It's been a real treat. Really kind of you to invite me. I've had a lot of, lot of fun revisiting this one. Thanks a lot. 
Yeah, thank, thank you indeed. And thank you to Allison for having suffered through all these cases and 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 worked on this that 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 is truly uh that that's truly a labor of love so uh to to read cases from the 1800s on municipal bonds uh so i mean that this is this is a gem <laughs> <laughs>